Good morning to you. Air travel quickly categorizes us. I don't know if you've noticed, but some get hot meals and hot towels and other get a puny packet of pretzels and half a can of tiny soda. Some stand in long lines in TSA while others are sort of whisked away. Some wait huddled next to one of six phone chargers for a plane of 120, while others sit in sky lounges with their own personal USB port. What separates these folks is their ticket class, or their membership in TSA pre-check, or perhaps their frequent flyer status. But it's not just the jet setter that gets classified. Uh, we see classification all throughout our situation. In fact, classifications are inevitable and unavoidable. In science, the standard taxonomy has eight categories. There's domain and phylum and kingdom uh, and class and order and family and genus and species. And once you get down to the species level, there's 8.7 million options. That's a lot of classification, isn't it? You're going to see classification in your everyday life. Suppose you wanted to buy a cookie. Well, now it's going to get difficult. So first we have to choose which grocery store do we go to. Let's say you go to Stop and Shop. All right? So you go there because it's a little easier to park than, than the shop right where it's kind of like Evil Knievel's brother who's blind is there. <laughs> and you go to Stop and Shop and you find yourself with aisle after aisle after aisle after aisle. You've got to find the cookie aisle. You finally find the cookie aisle, and then you have to find the Oreo section, because you're wanting to buy Oreos. And uh, then you get to the Oreo section, only to find this hasn't become any easier. Uh, uh, there's, there's traditional Oreos, what you came to buy. But then there's also double-stuffed, and now there's even mega-stuffed. And they even have reduced fat, but who really came here for that? Uh, and then you have the cream options, and there's regular or chocolate or mint or peanut butter, and they even have birthday cake. Then you have the permutations, fudge-coated with mint cream, uh, fudge-coated with regular cream, fudge-coated with peanut butter cream, or of course, utterly uncoated, any cream you want. And next to those are the counterfeits. There's the forlorn box of Hydrox, forever the bridesmaid, never the bride. <laughs> and then just below that, in the least prominent shelf for the thrifty, there will also be a store brand with, with some kind of hyper-descriptive but wholly unattractive name like cream-filled sandwich cookie. Mmm, doesn't that sound great? The point is, classification is inevitable, it is unavoidable, and in our passage today, God's Word is going to draw some very sharp distinctions that we should understand. Uh, last Sunday, we began exploring this passage, and we saw that Scripture makes a, a hard distinction between the natural person and the spiritual person. That is, uh, for believers and unbelievers, a wide gulf in how we see the world around us. But today, we're going to see that within believers, there are inevitable biblical dichotomies. Our passage today will distinguish between the mature and the immature Christian. It will uh, further uh, distinguish the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. And the question is, where do I fit in 
based on God's infallible categories, then is that where I want to be? I'm somewhere on this spectrum. Where am I? And is that where I want to be? With this in mind, please turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, please use one of ours. There's a blue pew Bible in front of you, and if you turn to page 1211, 1211, you will find 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Uh, thank you that you are a God who sends the rains. Your word tells us you send the rains on the, the just and the unjust, that we will all need to mow our grass and we will all have water from our taps uh, because you are a God who is so consistently, providentially good uh, that we think that this is just natural when in fact you could withhold the rain and we would be in significant trouble. Thank you that there is spring. Thank you that there are flowers and forsythia and daffodils. And now we're moving into peonies and other things that uh, bring beauty. Uh, thank you for the birds that are coming and all the wonderful things that you bring in spring that is temporarily winter but not always winter. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would warm our hearts as you're warming the earth. We pray that the uh, rains that you're sending to bring the flowers would be uh, the same in our lives, that through the washing of the word, through the scripture, you would open our eyes and unstop our ears, that you would bring to life, even new life, so that we would flower and we would be a people that display your great glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the word of God says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the ruler of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages of our glory and none of the rulers of this age understood it for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Speaking to an entire church, remember could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a, in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He is the one who plants and he is the one who waters, and they are one, and each will receive his labors according or his wages according to his labors, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field and God's building. And we'll go into this more over the next couple Sundays, but just our setting today. Last week, when we first looked at some of these verses, the main thing we took away is how incredibly desperately we need the Lord. We saw how we can't arrive at salvific truth apart from, from God's revelation. He has to disclose it to us. How all of our, our faculties and philosophies and ingenuity will not lead us to heaven. God must lead us to heaven. Jesus knows the way. Jesus shows the way. Because Jesus is the way. And since Jesus alone can atone for our sin that is within, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. But friends, Colossians 1.26 reminds us that this glorious gospel of grace is a mystery. Hidden for ages and generations. But it's now revealed through the church, through His saints. Last week, we saw Paul say exactly the same thing. In verse 7 of the passage we just read, that you and I, as Christians, when we share the gospel, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages and for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age understood it. If they did, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. So let's review a little bit before we get into some new material. So the natural man cannot arrive at salvific truth apart from God's revelation, God's self-disclosure. But friends, our problem runs deeper. For the natural man can't understand God's revelation, even if he possesses it, without the Spirit's enabling. Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Have you ever shared the Bible with someone and they've been utterly unimpressed? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. It doesn't make sense to him. This is, doesn't compute. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. As you start to see people catch on to the power of Scripture, what you're seeing is the power of the Spirit start to open their eyes. Notice that. Be aware of that. Be part of that. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So when you share with some folks who have yet to come to faith, the words of life bounce off them because they're dead. Let me see if I can help you understand this. Suppose I ran into a burning building. And I yelled, fire, run, escape. Most of you would run away. You would leave the vicinity. To the living, words of warning are worth heeding. The living would, would, would smell the smoke, they would feel the heat, and they would beat feet in retreat. But if I yelled fire, 
in a morgue. None of those corpses would be hearing, and none of those corpses would race out of that room that's burning. Because the dead cannot hear, the dead cannot heed. And the scripture here uncomfortably says, so too it is true for me and you. If we lack spiritual life, all of the warnings in the word and all of the preaching in the world will not make those dead in sin turn and run. So the solution, scripture says, is that God must make us alive to the truth so that then we will freely choose to act on that truth. The Bible paints a difficult picture. It says we're dead in sin, we're dead to the truth, and indeed this is how every one of us once were. Ephesians 2 speaks of the living dead. Before there was a show on AMC, there was the real deal, you see, and it's in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, Christian, you were dead. You were just like your friend. When the word of God came, it bounced off you like it bounced off them. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You, you lived like everyone else because you saw life like everyone else. The spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us, everyone, every Christian uh, also lived among that situation at one time. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature and we followed its desires and its thoughts and, and like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, He made us alive. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed to us in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, so that none of us can boast. Now, 1 Corinthians 2 has shown us that the natural man has two insurmountable problems that we talked about last week. We learned that we can't arrive at gospel truth without God's revelation, and we learned that we can't understand God's revelation without God's Spirit assisting and helping us. Which is why Paul reminds us, when I came to you, brothers, when he came to Corinth and all of its sin and all of its sickness and all of its brokenness, and Corinth was a mess, when Paul came there, I came to you, brothers, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lawfulness or with human wisdom, for I decided to know nothing of you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with demonstrations of the Spirit and power, so your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, since we can't persuade people to embrace God's truth, because it's like preaching to those corpses in the morgue, we need God's power in our presentation. We don't simply need better erudition and elocution. We need the author of just what he did in John chapter 11. Do you remember it? 
Jesus Christ stood at a tomb of a dead man. His name was Lazarus. Do you remember this? And he stood at this tomb, and, and the author of life called unto death and said, Lazarus, come forth. And, and I want you to notice <laughs> that Lazarus not only came to life, but he started walking in newness of life. If you read the story in John 11, Sort of tripped up in all the trappings of all the wrappings of his old life of death. And he staggered and he stumbled forward toward the call of Christ. And that's kind of like how we all do as babes in Christ. Raised to newness of life, still with a lot of the trappings of death, of the old life holding us back. And so our passage today makes a clear dichotomy natural person and the spiritual person between the lost person and the saved person and this is the most important and pressing dichotomy that we must understand entirely and it raises the question where do you stand where do you stand have you repented of your sin and trusted in your savior has your conscience been pricked? Do you feel pained by your rebellious actions against your creator's intentions? The Bible calls that, that conviction. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. It's the first step in our salvation. Understanding that we're standing in a burning building and that we will perish unless we look outside of ourselves for rescue. Romans 3.23 says it this way. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that all includes us all. But there is a solution to our pollution, and it's found in the infinite righteousness of Jesus. Jesus, the Bible says, well, he rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you believe it? Have you received it? Jesus, the Bible tells us, can bring us peace with God. Are you at peace with God through Jesus? Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 implores us, be reconciled, friend, to God. Be reconciled through Jesus Christ. For God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 6.23 sets our sin situation alongside God's perfect solution. It says, for the wages of sin is death. You want to earn something? you're going to earn separation. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now friends, that's going to take some action on your part. If God's Spirit is making you alive to the fact that, that your sin has alienated you from God, you're, you're becoming aware of that. You know what? I, I think I am a sinner. If God's Spirit is nudging you today to trust in Christ, then you're going to need to act on that truth. He's wooing, he's drawing, he's calling. But you must start obeying. Do you know what happens if you remain in a burning building? You perish. You perish. You perish. Romans 10.9 tells us if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No exceptions. No exceptions. Have you invited Jesus to be your Lord and your God? 
Uh, Have you asked Jesus to run your life for, for His glory instead of you ruining your life running after your own vanity? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? That Jesus is fully God and and fully man and that He lived sinlessly and He died uh, sacrificially and then He rose vicariously and victoriously? My friends, have you asked Jesus to save you? Have you asked Jesus to save you? Most of us know chemotherapy kills cancer, right? Somebody has cancer, we assume they're going to have radiotherapy or chemotherapy or both. But if I have cancer, and all I do is cognitively believe that there are benefits to chemotherapy, yes, it's true, chemotherapy will help me, but I never go to the oncologist, and I never submit my body to the chemotherapy personally, then the cancer will kill me. The presence of the cure does not cure. It's the taking of the cure, the embracing of the rescue that leads you to rescue. Friends, the very first book of the Bible warns us that sin is crouching at the door of your heart. It's knocking daily and repeatedly. The Bible minces no words in telling us that there's a real enemy and he comes like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. The Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is the answer in this. For greater is he who's in me than he who is in the world. Here's the question. Is he in you? Are you in him? If so, you've made the first crossing of category in our passage today. The most important crossing you can ever make. From spiritual deadness to spiritual life. From being a natural person to being a spiritual person. It's the first and most important category distinction in our passage. And that's now going to bring us to verse 15. It's now going to start speaking to that person who's put their faith in Jesus. And it says this, the spiritual person judges all things, but himself is judged by no one. Now, some haughty but naughty saints will, will misuse and abuse verse 15 to presume they have no accountability within God's family. That's not what this text is saying. They unbiblically believe that they are a law unto themselves. And they smugly say when they start to stray and someone notices, well, no one can judge me but God. Become a rapper's mantra and a t-shirt slogan. No one can judge me but God. Well, that's not entirely biblically true, friend. You see, we are ultimately only accountable to God. But the Bible teaches that he's given other Christians to help us so that we don't wander off the path. Paul writes right here in Corinthians, the same verse where he says in verse 15 that God is our ultimate judge. He he speaks about Christians helping one another stay on the path. He writes to the Corinthians about a subject called church discipline. In chapter 5, Scripture specifically states that in some cases, Christians must judge their other brothers to help straying saints progress in their sanctification. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5.12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? I don't don't need to judge the world and all of its permutations of of deadness. Is it not those inside the church that we're to judge? Not not to be judgmental, but but to help them, to encourage them, to keep them from falling into the temptations that are common to man. Verse 13 says, you know what? God's going to judge those outside. But, But you're going to have to purge excessive wickedness inside. And Paul further passes proper judgment 
to some saints uh, when they turned the Lord's Supper into a drunken stupor. In chapter 11, he writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, that's passing judgment, because when you came together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse, that's passing judgment. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You know what that is, friends? Passing judgment. Not to be judgmental, but to be helpful. Christians who are judgmental need to get off their high horse. Christians who are silent when others are sort of suffocating, maybe you need to get a spine. I don't know which one you need, but you probably need one of them. So verse 15 today must not be twisted as a justification to be above loving correction from a fellow Christian. Loving correction meant for our good, not harsh judgmentalism. Indeed, you can go back as far as 1887, right here in New Jersey, there was an old Princeton theologian named Charles Hodge, back when people went to Princeton to learn about the Bible. <laughs> and uh, Charles Hodge wrote in his commentary, if any man professes to be spiritual, because there are people that say, oh, you can't judge me, I'm so spiritual, but their life doesn't seem very spiritual. Hodge says, if any man professes to be spiritual and yet does what the Spirit and his word forbids or denies what the Spirit teaches, we know that he deceives himself. There are people that will tell you they're so spiritual, but their life isn't. Friends, the standard is Scripture. It's not claims of being super spiritual. Listen to verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Because we have access to the Word of God, and that is our standard. The mind of Christ guides us. It is the Word of Christ. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, Paul's told us. But, but taught by the Spirit, we interpret spiritual truths to those who themselves are spiritual. So God is our ultimate judge. But that doesn't mean that we can live like the devil. Because if you do, you will be a stumbling block to someone who's watching your life to see if the claims of Christ have any validity. If they look to your life and they see what they see everywhere else, they're going to think very little of Jesus. But if they look at your life and they say there's something different about you, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and I want it. Colossians 4.5 urges us to be wise in the way you act towards outsiders to make the most of every opportunity. 2 Peter 1.8 tells us it's possible for a genuine believer to be ineffective and unproductive in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 tells you and me that as Christians we are God's building. But each one should be careful how he builds. Each man builds on this foundation using gold and silver and precious stones or hay, wood, and stubble. His work will be shown for whatever it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's building. If what he has built survives, he's going to receive reward. So who are the ineffective and unproductive? Those who build with wood and hay and stubble upon the glorious gospel. Those who give their souls to Jesus then they run with the devil until Jesus comes to get it. And that life is wasted instead of invested. They go to heaven because of Jesus. They make no impact for heaven or for Jesus. Think of all of the riches they start missing when the king begins rewarding on that glorious day.
Our passage today makes two distinctions among Christians. One of them is found twice. It's found both in 2.6 and in 3.1. And the other is found three times in the first three verses of chapter 3. Let's start with the categories mentioned in 2.6. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Now skip down to 3.1, where Paul writes, But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? Infants. So there's the mature and the immature. The mature and the infant. Do you understand that among the saved, he's talking to only people who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior now. You're either mature or you're immature. In fact, you're either mature or you're still an, an infant. Now, friends, if you've recently come to Christ, if recently you've come to Christ, you're supposed to be a babe in Christ. And you're supposed to be growing out of some of the wrappings and trappings like Lazarus had, and that's totally normal, and we're going to give you a good pass on that because that's how you grow up in Christ. But did you know that healthy things grow in the world that God has made? In the natural world, every human being starts out as an infant and then we grow up. Uh, we're weaned from milk to meat. We cease being carried everywhere and we start to crawl and then toddle and then we walk and eventually we run. The older we get, the more we can do. We get to the point where we can tie our own shoes and they don't light up anymore. And then somebody hands us the keys to the family car. The ultimate terror in New Jersey of growing up, right? Uh, ultimately, more and more responsibility is given to us until we become reproducing adults and we start caring for our own little ones as they grow up. You know, this is how God has designed our world to work. And friends, the God of nature is the God of Scripture. And that's how He designed Christians to grow too. To grow from spiritual infancy to, to spiritual maturity. From needing to be bottle-fed by others to being in the Bible for ourselves. From moving from the milk of the Word to the meat. But it's not just the carnal, Christian, the carnal Corinthians who get short-circuited in this. The writer of Hebrews makes almost exactly the same charge to his audience. What does that tell us? It tells us that in every church, there's a huge challenge for the saved to grow up and become mature. Because Hebrews 5 says this, totally different audience, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God again. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice, they learn to distinguish good from evil. They've grown up. They've grown up. I want you to notice that the babe in Christ will eat milk and not meat. And it's not just baby doctrine that marks a baby believer. It's also juvenile behavior. The selfish demands of a toddler look very different than the selfless giving of a parent. Do we understand that on Mother's Day? Somebody makes the cookies. Somebody demands. 
Who's mature? Somebody makes a mess. Somebody fixes the mess. Hebrews 5 indicates that the way you see who is on milk and who is on meat is not primarily in our ability to parse the minutiae of Scripture. It's in how we live for Jesus. Listen again to Hebrews 5. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. They're choosing the good. They've grown up. In our passage, it's clear that there is also a third dichotomy. It's between the spiritual Christian and the the carnal Christian. The distinguishing feature uh, is whether that brother or sister is living like Jesus and living for Jesus, whether that brother is still living like a sinner and languishing in some gutter of his old life. Paul says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Now, these people were his fellow Christians. They were saved. They were our brothers. But in their worldview, in how they reacted, when they were prompted, they responded in a way that was fleshly, not spiritual. But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but of people of the flesh. Three times Scripture makes this dichotomy among uh, the saved between the carnal and the spiritual believer. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people as the flesh, as infants in Christ. And I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And still behaving in only a human way. Did you notice what distinguishes the fleshly follower from the spiritual follower? Behavior. When you and I think about the immature Christian, we think it's they're doctrinally immature. They can't quote as much scripture as we can. In fact, some of us who have a bent towards pharisaicalism (laughs) know all the answers and we turn people away from Jesus by our lives. Verse 3 identifies the behavior as the divider between the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife, that's behavior among you, Christian. Are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, that's factionalism, that's preference. I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? A Christian who looks like the world, who lives like the world, who thinks like the world, according to the Word of God, is a carnal Christian. Doesn't matter how much Scripture you can quote. Doesn't matter how many theology books you own. Unless you are Christ-like in your living, God says, I'm going to put you in the category of carnal. Now think about this for a second. That means that there are many stingy saints There are many haughty saints. There are many gossipy saints. There are many pharisaical saints who believe they are spiritual because they the Bible. But the Bible says, by their attitudes and actions, they're carnal. 
Do you know you can be in church for decades and you can learn all the answers? But if you always need to be right instead of being righteous. If you'd rather win at all costs than do whatever is in your power to bring peace. If you'd rather speak than listen. If you would sooner loathe than to love. Then 1 Corinthians 3 says, you're gonna, if your brother, you're carnal, not spiritual. And a biblical realignment is your most pressing assignment. You don't need another Bible study. You need to start living what you've been learning. Grow up, Christian. You know what marks a carnal believer? Here's what God's Word says. Throw out your own list. Listen to his list because he's got it right. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember? Chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even, that, even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. And here's how I know. For there is jealousy and strife among you. And when that is true, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? Friends, jealousy is what's in our hearts, right? But he can't necessarily see that we're jealous. Jealousy is sort of this me-first attitude. But strife, strife leaks out of us. Strife is the externalization of the internalization of jealousy. Strife is taking the, 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 the me-first attitude in my heart and letting it spill out in my speech and in my actions, and, and tragically it spills onto others. I might be able to hide jealousy. I can never hide strife. Here's what James says. You might want to write James 4 and verse 2 next passage. James puts it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The spiritual and the carnal are at war. You desire and do not have. I'm not getting what I want, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain so you fight and you quarrel. Did you know that the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? The Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God, to humble yourselves before the Lord. But here's the problem. Our flesh always wants to be first. The world tells us to look out for number one, and so we behave like number two. Brothers and sisters, we preach the message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The cross shows us that the way to exaltation is through humiliation. It's through taking up our cross that Christ is lifted up. And when we lift up Christ, then all the world is drawn unto him because he is beautiful. But you know what the carnal Christian always tries to lift up? We try to lift ourselves up. We try to make sure we're the highest corn stalk in the field. We want our faction to win. We want our gifts to be promoted in the church. We want our preferences to be the practices that everyone else must do. We want our status, single or married, to be the most exalted. The Corinthians were fighting about that later in the book. Uh, we, we want our position on controversial matters like meat sacrifice to idols to not just be validated, we want it to be standardized, no matter if those with weaker consciences are violated and scandalized. See how we want to win at all costs. We want to turn worship into showmanship and a game of one-upsmanship. And God wants nothing to do with that. God showed us the way. 
in Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped. But he voluntarily made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He, he being made in human likeness at the incarnation. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even the worst form of death, which is death on a cross. So here's the question. Where do you fit in this morning? Based on the Bible, based on the Word of God today, if you are a believer, are you still on the bottle or are you in the Bible for yourself? Are you eating meat and sharing it with others? Or have you become so content with milk that anything heavy, anything challenging, anything requiring deep thinking, anything convicting is something to which you won't be listening? The question for the Christian is, am I wordly or am I worldly in my mentality, in my Christianity? Is my thinking, or is it cultural? Do I see people? Do I see events? Do I see situations as God word guides or pretty much the same way as my lost neighbor sees it? Second dichotomy. Am I a spiritual infant, or am I mature? Now, if you say mature, are you sure? Because the test of maturity is not solely doctrinal fidelity. Did you know I can train a parrot to squawk a fine catechism? But God says in James 1, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. So am I full of jealousy or overflowing with selfless agape love? Do I seek my own prominence and dominance or do I seek Christ's preeminence? Do I loud my faction or do I loud my Christ? Now, this is all new to you. There's one more dichotomy. It was our first dichotomy. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Why delay? Why not today? We're going to sing a song in just a moment called Softly and Tenderly. Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me, come home. Come home. It's where the truth is. It's where love is. It's where grace is. It's where God's best is. And God so loved you that he sent the truth and his best so you could be his. Every head, closed, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today... And you haven't had that crossing of category. You know about Jesus, but you have not given your life to Jesus. You know that chemotherapy cures cancer. But then you never went to the chemotherapist to be rid of the cancer. Friends, knowing about Jesus won't save you. You need to know Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you believe that He is fully God and fully man, if you believe that He died on the cross to take the sin of all who would believe, 
If you are willing to say, Lord, I want you to run my life, you are God and I want you to be my God, and I want to start coming out of that cave of death, and I want you to start unwrapping the trappings that have me suffocating and tripping. Help me to walk in newness of life. If you want that today, you can pray with me right here, right now. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And so I confess right now my desire for you to run my life, and I ask that your Spirit would shape me and mold me in a trajectory of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.